0: I was born in Hong Kong, so it's, and I'm a permanent resident there, so it always holds a special place in my heart, and that's a, that was a big driver for why I, I wanted to go back and work there. I've been back there twice, so the first time was in 97 during the handover, and the second time was in 2005. Um, 97 was just such an incredible year. There was a lot of trepidation, but there was also an air of excitement about, you know, what lies ahead. Singular of days began with the most typical of Hong Kong summer weather, heat and the promise of rain. You know, I I was there on that day when the handover um, took place and it was just pouring, pouring rain outside. And yet the rain was but a mild distraction, for as the last governor left his residence, the sense of occasion of emotion was palpable. but it was just such a, you know, you knew you were witnessing history and it really, really, really was. Um, And I was lucky enough to be a reporter who could be on the front line of that. So, you know, professionally, it was just a great, great moment um, to be there. And then personally, it was also very, um, you know, very emotional for me because, you know, my family had left Hong Kong many years before in anticipation of 1997 they were you know they were concerned about about what was you know what could happen and i think a lot of families were i just think you know whether or not it's good or bad uncertainty just you know causes people to to want to take some action so you know whether or not the consequences are good or bad in the end um so you know so personally for me it was it was a very emotional time as well um i'm really you know i think i share a lot of people's you know s- same sentiments which which is you know it's it's whatever your politics are you know it is sad to see you know people protesting on the streets and it's sad to see the destruction it's sad to see the police and the citizens fighting um that's not the hong kong i know and you know and 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 it's 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 difficult to see how, to predict how it will end Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize it's about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode?
1: But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope.
0: I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It Either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this instance of wanting to run towards it.
1: Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is a dear friend. And Betty, we know each other. It's got to be at least 10 years now.
0: Oh my goodness, yes, Matt. At least, right? Dating ourselves, but it's got to be more than 10 years. But it's been a a good 10 years.
1: It has indeed. (laughs) And uh, Betty Lou is now the Executive Vice Chairman of the New York Stock Exchange. But I'd love to start, Betty, back in 1995, when you were a correspondent working for Dow Jones. And um, take us back to that very first day you're starting out your career. What comes to mind?
0: (laughs) Wow. I have to really jog my memory now, Matt. Uh, You know, back, back in those days, I mean, that was like... Uh, I I actually feel like I'm really going to date myself when I say, I think it was back in those days when email just really started. So that's how far back we're talking about.
1: Millions of Americans own a personal computer. If you're one of them, you can now glimpse the future with nothing more than a modem, a phone line.
0: You know, I I remember when I was, um, when I started out in print. So I started on Newswires and then I moved over to, to, to newspapers. And, you know, I'd made a decision early on in my career. That I really wanted to move into television. You know, I wanted to become a, a business television journalist. And that was considered so, like, radical, almost. People were telling me that, you know, that there, that there, it'd be very difficult. It's a whole different skill set. People just don't do that. If you're in newspapers, you stay in newspapers. If you're in television, you, need, you needed to have started out from college, like there's just no, no pathway there. and you know uh, and, and I, I didn't listen and I tried and I definitely failed many times before I moved over into television. But, but I think even in that time period that I was doing that, you know the walls were starting to break down. and now you know those distinctions between print and digital and television, they're still there, but they it's much more fluid. Right, so it's just all—it's people are content creators. It's not so much you're a—you know—you're a television journalist or you're—you know—and everyone these days, you know, is almost. I think CNN is the one that coined the term citizen journalist. I think almost anybody these days with a phone and a you know Twitter account is a citizen journalist. Um, and you know, and I, I know immediately as I say that, then people are going to start thinking about fake news and you know and the proliferation of that. Um, And so, so having said all that, I, you know, I'm a diehard journalist at heart. And I, I do think that there is always going to be a place for news organizations. You know, I think information is abundant, but I, I really believe so firmly in the institution of journalism and that there will always be the need for journalists to, and for the craft of journalism to make sure that the public is informed and to make sure the public is well informed. And I know as soon as I say that, you know the, 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 there's lots of, there's going to be lots of conversations around the divisiveness of journalists and you know, the partisan politics and the activism of journalists and and, all, and and I'm not saying none of that exists, but I'm saying that the craft of journalism, I think is, is integral to a democratic society. a functioning society. And I think there will always be a place for that.
1: So you had a great five-year run at the FT. What were some of the big stories that you remember covering? You were a very young journalist at that time. The FT gave you a global platform. Do you remember any of the stories in particular that you went deep on?
0: Oh, my goodness. I loved working at the Financial Times. That was a really growth period for the FT. I mean, you know, FT's still doing so well. Um, and, you know, they've expanded globally. But at the time that I joined, they were opening up bureaus around the, around the country. You know, they had a bureau in Houston and San Francisco. And they had asked me to open up their Atlanta bureau, which now I can tell the story. The Atlanta bureau was really the bedroom in my, in my apartment. That was the bureau. So I was like a roving, you know, roving lone reporter um all around the American South. And I can't tell you, Matt, how amazing that period of time was because I was able to travel all around the South and learn about people and learn about people through business stories. And, you know, not just covering companies like Coca-Cola or Home Depot or FedEx, um, you know, all of whom are NYC listed companies, which I can proudly say now <laughs> in my capacity. But I really also got a chance to learn a lot about American culture, you know, outside of my own upbringing in Philadelphia and to really learn a lot about just, you know, how other, you know, how people not like myself, how they think and what their lives are like. And that's just like heaven for a journalist, right? You can just go and like be enmeshed in people's lives and ask them lots of questions and they'll just divulge all sorts of details about themselves. and And I was actually reminded of my time in the South Um, just in the last few days with the passing of John Lewis. I would come home and ask my mother, ask my father, why segregation, why racial discrimination? They would say, that's the way it is. Don't get in the way, don't get in trouble. But Dr. King inspired me to get in the way, to get in trouble. Because I, one of my assignments had been to go back to Selma, Alabama and walk the bridge and meet with people and talk with them? Like, what is the aftermath of the civil rights movement? I fell. I fell when the posse or whoever
1: it was hit me, and it was below my shoulder. And I looked at him like I thought he was crazy. And he said, run. Then he hit me
0: back up my neck. And I was unconscious. And those are the kinds of stories that really resonated with people, uh, particularly in, in um, I used to joke, like, you know, people in the UK would really love those stories. Because if they had a picture of America, like, usually that America was the American South. So they loved reading about, you know, reading about race relations and, and you know, what what the South, how, how the South is growing out of, you know, out of its violent past. And So in any case I, I was just thinking about the, those reporting trips I made and, and the friends I made in, in Selma because I would spent a week a couple of weeks down there at separate times And um, and it was just you know, it made me really think think a lot about that period and you know uh, It made me think a lot about about just how you know what a towering figure um, you know john lewis, you know is and was
1: We march today for jobs and freedom But we have nothing to be proud of. The hundreds and thousands of our brothers are not here, but they're receiving starvation wages or no wages at all. While we stand here, there are sharecroppers in the Delta of Mississippi, who are out in the field working for less than $3 a day.
0: I think one of the things that I am always so grateful for is being a journalist, is that you get this license to to meddle in people's lives and they, and they're, you know, they're more than happy to tell you their stories um, because at the end of the day, everyone just wants to be heard and it's, they just want their story told.
1: You then achieved a goal to get yourself on television going from the FT. I think it was the Squawk Box Asia.
0: Yep. So, you know, I had, I had twin boys and uh and after that kind of had an epiphany that or during that time had an epiphany that i you know that i'd want to move from print to to television so i was doing the usual like uh you know uh what's the word for that tiger mom type a ambitious you know like i'm gonna have kids and i'm gonna change my career so so i so that's that was all around the same time and You know, I had my boys. Was gonna took a year off on maternity leave, and uh, and at that time, I was actually feeling very frustrated because I wasn't really gaining any traction in my career. I kind of felt like I'd stalled a little bit. And out of the blue, uh, the head of CNBC Asia gave me a a ring and said, "You know, we have an opportunity in Hong Kong. You know, you don't have the skills for television yet, but we can teach that. But at least you have the knowledge about Asia." and that we can't really teach you, um, you know, that's something that you already have, which is, which is a, a, a benefit. So, um, you know, so we have this opportunity, and would you like to come out there? And, it, you know, it didn't take me more than two seconds to say yes, and I, and I went out, you know, and I went out there, you know, raised my boys, you know, in Hong Kong, but got to travel, travel around the region, and it was, uh, it was a really great, great moment to be able to to make that transition and also to to learn a new skill as well.
1: And a couple years there and then the start of what I think was a, over a decade-long run at Bloomberg, which was incredible.
0: Yeah, and I'll tell you a quick story about about my time. You know, I, I learned a very like I'm always about like micro moments of learning. Um, there was a there was a moment of learning during my transition into television that I often talk about with, I often tell this story with, um, you know, with audiences, particularly young people and women. So, you know, at the time that I was uh, being, uh, pursuing this job, you know, in television and, or, you know, or they had called me and I was, you know, pursuing, pursuing the, uh, you know, pursuing the job itself when it came to me, um, you know, I was so desperate to make this move into television that, uh, I remember at that, at the very final stages of the interviewing process, the, you know, the woman who was the head of CNBC Asia, um, you know, had said, had said to me, watch out for an offer letter. You know, we'll, ha- we'll have all your details in there, your salary, you know, and then, and then give me a ring and let me know. And I remember that night, like I was so excited about getting that offer letter, and I. Opened up the email, and lo and behold, that offer was way lower than what I would have thought. And in fact, like it was, you know, to the point where I probably would be losing money. I don't know if people have ever been in this position, but I'm actually like paying to have this job, you know, like I'd be losing money because I'd be moving to a city that was even more expensive to live in. And, you know, rather than negotiate, I was just so desperate and so scared of losing that job that i just immediately said yes you know i said i'll i'll eat it and i'll just say yes and so i did and you know i i knew that immediately after i did that that i regretted that decision but i couldn't turn it back so a couple of years later when i moved and i got my when i got my job from bloomberg television i had one final drink with the same boss and you know she was giving me a toast goodbye and she Um, I remember very specifically, she kind of looked at me and she said, you know, I've always wanted to tell you this one thing. And I said, sure. She said, when you, when I gave you that offer letter and you replied back, you know, I'll take it. She was like, I was so surprised. You know, I was really ready to negotiate with you. Like I thought you were going to come back with a higher number and that we were going to meet in the middle. And she said, you just took it. And she was like, don't you ever do that again? (laughs) And it was such a great lesson for me to really value yourself. and And you know, and we often do a lot of things out of fear. And I don't fault anybody for that at all. I have a lot of compassion because I do a lot of things out of fear too. But it was that moment where I, where I really learned a lot about my, myself, that I was not valuing myself properly. And so you know I've never made that mistake again. But you know i I see that as a a really a big moment of a big moment of learning for me. And I just tell that story because I hope that others can share uh, others can learn from that as well, and hopefully they won't make that same mistake either.
1: Uh, that's a great story and when I think of you i I always think of you first and foremost as someone who has an incredible entrepreneurial spirit, a passion to sell to tell stories that we know, and also you know sort of the living manifestation in all the good ways and the right ways of female empowerment. Did you always have that sort of entrepreneurial spirit in you or did that flame grow over time?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I actually think that journalists are a lot like entrepreneurs. They are self-starters. They have lots of ideas. They're very creative. They have to go out there and sell their stories to their editors and they have to sell the story to the public. And they also have to cultivate a really great network. Otherwise, they're they're nowhere with their, you know, with their stories. They're very, very enterprising. So I actually think that I've just always had the entrepreneurial spirit. I just went from channeling it in journalism to really channeling it into a business. So I did have that itch. I mean, when I graduated in '95, that was right before. The height of the dot-com boom and I had friends who were becoming millionaires and you were kept hearing every other day you know some other young 25 year old was going to be becoming the next you know multi-millionaire and so at the time I kind of thought to myself that I didn't want to start a company but then of course the dot-com crash happened immediately after and I and I said oh thank goodness I didn't you know (laughs) I, I I saved myself from that heartache um but that that always constantly kind of burned in me. And when I was working at Bloomberg, I you know began to interview lots of really successful people. So when you might think of a sleek new sports car or a rocket ship, as promised, with me now is Elon Musk, he's the founder, the chairman and the CEO of the electric car maker Tesla, as well as the rocket maker, you could say SpaceX. Elon, great to have you here with us. And I would talk to them about their business knowledge, I would talk to them about their companies, but then when the cameras turned off, I'd also just ask them, you know, how did you, how did you, like, how do you lead? How do you, you know, I would ask them business advice. I'd ask them career advice. I'd ask them all sorts of things. And I just got to the point where I thought, you know, like I should, I would like to, I would like to start something of my own. Like, you know, I think these people are, are very smart, but I'm also smart too. I think I can do the same thing. And I, I've always had various ideas and there was one in particular that really just, I couldn't let go of. And I think you'll hear entrepreneurs talk about that. It's like, they've got this one idea that just, you know, haunts them and they can't let go of that idea. And so that's what I had. And I finally decided one day I was going to take the plunge and I, uh, and I, I did, I just, I decided I was going to, you know, I was going to just, just do it and literally talk to, five of my closest friends who were in business and asked them to help me. And we literally at one point, you know, mapped out what the company was going to be like on a, on a literal napkin. And then it was, you know, it was from there I I started radiate. And
1: you had to, it wasn't a long run, but it was really, you made your mark, you know, relatively quickly.
0: It was, yeah, it was literally two years from the time we, a little over two years from the time we, we start incorporated the company to the time we sold it to, um, to Intercontinental Exchange and the New York Stock, you know, which is the parent company of the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, I, a lot of people ask me like, what is it like to be an entrepreneur? It's probably one of the most um, humbling experiences ever. I mean, it is like, and you know, other people talk about this, I used to share stories about this with others. It's like, you're like, oh, I finally get to be a CEO, but you're also like the toilet cleaner. And you're also, you know, right? Like you're also like writing the writing all the social media posts. Like you're a one-man band. and um, And then slowly you build your team and you start to delegate to your team. But it is such a lonely and humbling experience. And there's nothing worse. I don't care what any entrepreneur says. There's nothing worse than fundraising. Like it is so hat in hand going out there and pounding the pavement. You get to a point, of course, where you built such a great company that investors come to you. But at the very start, you're going out to investors. But I learned so much about myself. And the, one of the best parts about being an entrepreneur is that the sky's the limit. Like there is, a, there is a bottom to your company, which is bankruptcy. Like it just won't exist anymore. Like that's your bottom. So that's your downside. But your upside is as far as your mind will go. And that's what I love about building a building a company is that is that it really is, and that's what's also what's scary about it because it is really a test of who you are and your mental, like your mental state and your your ability to think big. Um and one other thing I'll say is that one investor taught me this very, very important lesson early on, which was, you know, because he asked me this, he was like, "Well, how big do you want this company to be?" And I gave my usual, you know, sort of like, well, I think realistically, we could be in it. And he was just like, no, 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 no. He's like, I want you to be a megalomaniac. Like, I want you to tell me that this company is going to be the next, you know, billionaire, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And I understood why he was saying that he was saying that because if you're going to survive as an entrepreneur and build a company, you've got to be crazy. And you have to think so big, because very likely you'll end up halfway there. But if you think as big as possible, you know, you just never know. You may get there. So that's um, so that's why I really love entrepreneurialism.
1: And so tell us a little bit more about Radiate and what ultimately led to the sale uh, inside of two years and led to where you are right now as uh, executive vice chairman of the stock exchange.
0: Ah, uh, yeah. So, so I'm, you know, I'm. I'm one of the things about you know you you Matt you talk a lot about brands and personal brands so you know I I talk a lot about that too and I think one of my personal brand or one part of my personal brand is just that I have a very you know I have a pretty deep network right a deep network of C suite um, C suite executives and you know I like to I'd like to think that there's you know pretty much anybody that I can I can get a hold of and um, and I think that that really came out of my networking as a, as a television anchor, you know, the television anchor, you know, you're, you're interviewing and speaking with thousands of people a year. So one of those people I'd met many, many years ago was Jeff Sprecher. I had actually interviewed him or moderated a panel at um, a conference down in Florida. And, you know, we talked and, and, and uh, I think we kept in touch a little bit, but, but we, we just had a conversation. And a couple of years later, so this is now, you know, going back to 2018, you know, he calls me up out of the blue and or emailed me actually, and then we talked. And, you know, he said, look, like I'm, you know, looking to enhance our network at the New York Stock Exchange. Like we want to build out our content platform, we want to develop our relationships. And, you know, we've been, I've been seeing what you've been doing at the company, like, is this something that you'd be interested in? So uh I actually initially thought he wanted to just partner. Like, I just thought like, oh, this is a partnership. Cause I, I'd been already on like 20,000 partnership calls with various companies. And so I thought, oh, here's another one. But, you know, so I asked him, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, you know, why don't you come over as, uh, you know, as, as I don't think we had settled on, on, uh, on vice chairman yet, but he was essentially saying, you know, come over, you know, be one of the senior executives and, and, uh, and we'd buy your company. And I was, uh, I think I actually said to him, like, is, is this candid camera? Like, are you joking? And he was like, no, like I'm serious. And so from there, you know, I, of course, I didn't have to think, I, I said, let me think about it, talk to my co-founders and a couple of weeks later, we were on our way to, to you know, signing a deal with, you know, with this Fortune 500 company. And um, and you know one of the things that really appealed to me about working for Jeff is that you know he is himself also very much an entrepreneur. You know he's a one of the few CEOs, publicly listed company CEOs, who's founded their own company, is still the CEO. And I think that you know I think that entrepreneurialism is was a very good fit, you know, for me and for and for Radiate and and just for where you know where where I wanted to be and what I wanted you know what I thought I could add value um, to here. You know, a lot of people think of the New York Stock Exchange as sort of, you know, it is a 228-year-old institution, and there's a lot of history. But there's also a lot of um, innovation and entrepreneurialism here, and I think a lot of that is owed to the owed to the ownership now of inter, you know by Intercontinental Exchange, which is really a 20-year young company, and they continue to transform, you know, every single year and go into new markets. So I really like that about the company. So, so I've I've been enjoying myself ever since.
1: What's it been like the last four or five months? You are in the center of the center of the global economy. You see things, read things, hear things that few people see, read, or hear. What has that roller coaster been like for you the last four or five months?
0: Well, it's been like that, I think for a lot of people. Well, I think we've been lucky being at you know at the NYSE where we have access to you know twenty three hundred listed companies that we're able to see you know and and work with them and 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 understand what they're going through and see some of the trends um you know of of what of of what's happening with these companies. I think everyone, I mean, one common theme out of all of this, I think that you probably feel this as well is, and I'm in the office today, but but I think everyone has been just so stunned at how we've all been able to adapt our businesses and our business models to, to work from home. You know, that has been, that has been an incredible, we've all gone through like one huge human experiment. <laughs> yeah. and, 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 it's, and it's working, you know, we're all, we're all working from home and we're all able to still run our businesses, you know, at ICE and NYC, you know, we're, we're still able to. It doesn't mean though that there aren't elements where, where things just work better when people are in the office, and you know we opened up our trading floor because you know our stocks trade better, you know when there's and when there's human, um, uh, human traders behind that on the floor, so on um, human judgment really. So so I think there's there's always going to be elements of that, but I think I think just everyone is is kind of rethinking a little bit about you know, about the office space and and just also just pretty incredulous that that we've all been able to adapt so quickly.
1: So, Betty, both now where you've got, you know, 2,300 of the greatest companies, you know, in the world on the stock exchange uh, down on Wall Street, you also spent a lot of time interviewing some of the greatest minds, you know, business all over the world has ever produced. What conversations have you had as you reflect, you know, on the last, you know, period of your career that you really enjoyed, you know, a conversation with somebody were particularly inspired or particularly memorable?
0: Well, I always enjoy conversations with people who are pretty unguarded. And, you know, I, I would put, in, I, there aren't a lot of people like that just because, you know, when you run public companies it's it's you know it's hard to just be completely you know completely uh open like an open book but I, I would put a few people in that category, like I think Warren Buffett's in that category. here with Warren Buffett and also Courtney Wolf of Salida Capital, uh, who was a lucky winner uh, for this lunch. or You bid actually last year, and of course, we're having the lunch this year. Uh, Warren, let me start with you. I mean, you do this, uh, you've done this every year since uh, 2000, right. when the first uh, uh, you know, auction mm-hmm. went up for these lunches. What do you, tell me what you get out of these lunches. Oh, I get a lot out of it. I mean, it's it's wonderful to see Glide get the money. I mean, nobody would use it better than Cecil Williams and glide you know they're all they're sort of all who you think who you think they are um and what your impression of them is and i enjoy i've enjoyed interviewing both of them um and i remember you know with warren uh, i felt very comfortable with him after after a couple of times interviewing him there was one time we were at, at a doing an interview and when the cameras turned off i i i said to warren i said know i just have always had I, i really i've been dying to ask you this question for so long like can i just ask you this question he said sure and i said you know what is it like to be so rich like you're just so rich what is it like and you know he laughed and he said it you know money doesn't really change you it just makes you more of who you are so you know if you're if you're a nice person money just makes you nicer but if you're a jerk, it just makes you an even bigger jerk, and uh, and then my reply back was, well, I'd really like to test that theory out." So I'm still, wa- I'm still wait- waiting to test that theory. But
1: uh... <laughs> and just to wrap up, Betty, you work in one of the most iconic buildings um, in New York, in the country, and arguably in the world. It must be incredibly inspirational, you know. Uh, to walk into that building uh, on Wall Street, and what does that mean to you every day? Do you think about the history and and what it all means? And you're still relatively young in your career.
0: Oh, I think about that a lot, and I, I thought about that this morning, walking into this building. You know, it's 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 such a symbol of the of the economy, and not just the U.S. economy, but the global economy, and. You know, and people have such a such an emotional attachment to, you know, to the New York Stock Exchange. It's one of the few brands I say that, you know, is is on par with like a Coca-Cola where it's recognized all around the world. You only need to say it once and people know exactly, you know, what you're talking about. So, you know, I'm always honored. I mean, I'm honored to be able to have the privilege to work here and, you know, and to be a part of a part of a very small part of the history here. Um, at the exchange and and you know, I, I, I wrote a recent LinkedIn post on uh, for Independence Day where I just talked about, you know, how how proud I am as an American to be working here and how proud I am to be at the New York Stock Exchange. And I don't I don't think there's another country in this world where and I still don't think there's another country in this world where you can you can be an immigrant, you can come here with very little in your in your pocket. And you can have access to some of the best education in the world and you know as my dad grew up and or as my dad grew his career here from midlife on was able to see his daughter come and work at one of the symbols of economic strength i you know i really don't think that exists as well in other countries and so i'm very proud to be a part of the nyc but i'm also a very proud american too
1: Well, it's a great story. And I think we need more of those positive, inspirational stories today more than ever. Um, You are an absolute joy to talk to. So thank you so much for doing this.
0: Wonderful. Thank you, Matt. It was great to talk with you. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit AdvertisingWeek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.